the world, and that's the human body. It is, our bodies are a marvel of complexity. And if you, oh, John, I don't have a clicker up here this morning. Oh, no. How am I going to change channels and surf? Surf the PowerPoint. Thank you, sir. So our bodies are this marvel of complexity. And just take, for instance, a human brain. There are more than a billion neurons in our brain. And each one forms a thousand or more connections, making over a trillion connections, circuits, within your brain. And that's just the wiring alone. The memory storage capability of the human brain is, no pun intended, but it's mind-boggling. It's estimated to be around 2.5 petabytes. Now, that's a big number. That's 2.5 million gigabytes of data, which is incredible. If your brain worked like a DVD, like a DVR, 2.5 petabytes or petabytes would be enough memory to hold 3 million hours of TV shows. In other words, you could record TV continuously for 342 years with the storage capacity in your brain. I tried to do a calculation on how big a volume of DVDs would that be. <laughs> I couldn't get any, I didn't want to have to measure and calculate it myself and I couldn't find any stats, but I'm sure it would more than fill this whole building with DVDs. Just the capacity of your brain. It, it's truly astounding. And yet, with all of this marvelous complexity, we still have a tendency to forget things, don't we? Is it just me? <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> well, according to one survey, the things people most commonly forget, why you went into a room. Isn't that the stupidest <laughs> feeling? You go walking in there. <laughs> what did I come in here for? So you got to go back and retrace your steps and then try again. And this time maybe you break through and you realize what you were doing. Where you put your keys was number two. Forgetting things on your grocery list, that happens. Um, forgetting people's names when you're introducing them. <laughs> Not when you're meeting them, but when like, oh, I want you to meet my friend. Uh, yeah. That's when I look to my wife and, and she gets, she, she knows when I send her that signal and she goes, yeah, how are you doing, Mr. Smith? Or whatever, she kind of covers for me, thankfully. Forgetting to take meat out of the freezer to defrost, I don't, I don't usually run into that. Uh, but forgetting to respond to an email or a text and on and on and on. When I don't remember something, I like to say I'm having a junior moment because my kids would forget stuff all the time. So it's not age related. It doesn't matter what age you're at. We have this tendency to forget. Some of the things we can forget can be really consequential like a birthday or an anniversary. I have an anniversary coming up in a couple of weeks and my wife, she, I can't hardly take it off anymore, but she engraved our wedding date on the inside of my wedding ring so I wouldn't forget. Now, the, the, the bummer is after 36 years, it's worn off. You can't even read it anymore, but I do remember November 30th. Um, so we have this tendency to forget, but the thing that people forget more than anything else is new information. Research also shows that without certain forms of, of reinforcement, we will forget 40% of new information within 20 minutes. 66% after a day, 75% after a week, 90% after a month. Does anybody even remember what the title of the sermon was last week? Without looking at your notes, does anybody remember? Raise show of hands. <laughs> There's one, two, yeah. Well, more than 90% of you forgot it. Yeah, it was, it was, what was it now? <laughs> I have, 
Making every effort. Thank you, Anita. Making every effort. Sometimes I will be like on Tuesday morning after my day off, and I'm going, what? And I can't even get the, the name of the message from just two days before. We have this tendency to forget. Now, um, some recent studies in this whole area of neuroscience there was a study published in the, in the journal, the, the professional journal Neuron, and it claims that forgetting is not a failure on the brain's part, but it's actually a strategy. They believe now that our brains are wired, that's my way of saying designed almost, wired to forget. And they say the reason for that is so that our minds will prioritize the most important information for the sake of quick recall and decision making. Now they attribute that to evolution. I think part of that could be God's design. It could be that we weren't meant to forget, but that that is part of the fall. I like to think that pre-fall, I would remember everybody's name. You know, my if you're Adam and this is my wife, Eve, I, I would think he would remember that in a lot more. But so they think that this might actually be a strategy that our brain employs for getting. I'm, I'm more comfortable with that. I like that idea that it's not a failure. But along with this, they publish some things that can help us retain new information as we learn it. One of those is combining text with images. It's often easier to remember something that's been presented with visual aids. How many of you, you don't remember the message title, how many of you remember the pictures of my grandson from last Sunday? Yeah, who could forget that, right? There he is. <laughs> yeah. Oh. That little guy flew in a small plane from Texas to Wisconsin yesterday so that he could surprise his grandma at the fall retreat. <laughs> they, they showed up for dinner last night. I thought that was so cool. I knew it was happening, and I'm watching him on the flight aware going across the country praying for him, but uh, they totally surprised my uh, wife and my son. And that's the camp where my daughter worked for four years. So she was wanting to bring the baby back there and let him meet him. I'm a little jealous because my wife has already gotten to spend some time and I have to wait till Thursday. But anyway, okay, so we remembered a picture. Does anybody remember the point that I was making with that picture? There was none, right? <laughs> just, <laughs> I just wanted to show you guys the pictures. <laughs> Actually, there was a point. The point was that, yeah, you remember, we have, we have, just like with our physical birth, we have very little to do with that, but we have a lot to do with our growth and maturity. And the same is true on the spiritual side. We have very little to do with our spiritual birth. We make a decision. The rest is God's work. But once born again, we have a lot to do with our growth and maturity. That was the point of the message. So images can help us retain information. And I try to incorporate visual aids. I'm a visual learner. I like illustrations. I like pictures. They help me hold on to information. Another way that we can retain information, they say, is discussion. When we talk about things that we've heard when we discuss them with peers, it's going to help us store that information in a way that we can retrieve it. And then uh, another way, and probably the most important way that, that helps us retain information is through repetition, revisiting something that we've learned before and reinforcing it. They say, these scientists say that whenever those same neurons are fired over and over again, that it creates synaptic connections, this wiring that is stronger. And they call it synaptic plasticity, which enhances our ability to retrieve that information. Now, there's not a lot I remember from when I was three or four years old, but there's a couple things that I've recounted in my mind over and over again, and, and I remember that really well. Those, that wiring to that data stored. I think it's all in there somewhere, but our ability to recall it is strengthened when we revisit that information over and over again. So repetition is a key to holding on to important information. 
Now, this isn't anything new to God. He didn't just tune into that study, read the journal Neuron, and go, oh, that's it. No, God knew this. And our text actually brings out this point this morning. And so the message title is, It's Worth Repeating. But before we go there, I want to back up and look at the outline from last week because it actually dovetails into this week. So last week we looked at making every effort and there were three parts to that. We saw the encouragement and then the assignment and then the measurement. Remember that now that you see it? And this week, what I want to look at, we're going to continue. Again, the message title is worth repeating. We're going to look at verses 10 through 15 in 2 Peter 1, and we're gonna look, first of all, at the inducement in verses nine and 10, and finally, the restatement in verses 11 through 15. So, as always, I wanna start by just reading through the text. It's a nice short text again, and then uh, next week, we're gonna jump into another topic that I just love, and that's one of prophecy. So, Beginning in verse 10, it reads, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. So if you, for if you do these things, you will never fail, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 12, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the, t this tent, in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. So I wanna look first at the inducement, the incentive. Why should we be eager? to do this? Why should we make every effort? We, we talked about that a little bit last week, but the text this morning dives into it more. And I told you that Peter would go back to using the word therefore. He, he, he mixed it up a little bit in verse 5 last time where he said, for this very reason. But now he's back to therefore. And he uses it a lot, and you're probably tired of hearing me say it, but when you see the word therefore, find out what it's Therefore, what is it therefore? And so to do that, we need to go back in the text. And Peter often uses these multi-dimensional lines of reasoning. He establishes one point, the truth of that point. And then he says, therefore, my second point, this is also something you need to know. This is also true. And then therefore, point three. This, and oftentimes, that's, this is what you should do in response to the truth of point two and point one. So I like how his mind works. He builds these, these arguments, these lines of reasoning, and that's what we see him doing. So when we see, therefore, this time we need to go all the way back to verse three of chapter one. And, and I'm going to read it. It says, his, meaning Jesus, we made clear, that's Jesus spoken of there. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now, this is talking about something so extraordinary that it's hard to even get our minds around it. And that's not just my exaggeration. It's talking about abundant and increasingly sharing, abundantly and increasingly sharing in the very nature of Christ himself. It's talking about eternal life and sharing in the divine nature. And again, that's something so good, it's hard to even imagine it. We might not even appreciate it, but that's not just my words. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. It's mind-boggling what God has in store. This was point number one that Peter wanted to make. 
You, and, and we can't even get our mind around it, but we do get a little taste of it, just a small taste on this earth. A, f- a few weeks ago, I mentioned that old beer commercial. Remember, they're out there fishing, and then they open a cold one, and what do they say? It doesn't get any better than this. I use that intentionally in the welcome about my cake and pizza. <laughs> That's just not true. If you're a believer, it gets a whole lot better than this. So good that we can't even get our minds around it. That's what point number one is, and I don't want us to miss this. And so we can summarize this starting point this way. Believers have abundant and eternal life. And just think, spend some time this week thinking about what that actually means. And so I labeled this the encouragement last time. Peter starts with these encouraging words. And then he moves on with his second point, which I called the assignment. Let's look at verse 5. He says, for this very reason, that's what therefore means, for this very reason, point number two, he says, Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. Now, we know that we're not saved by our own good works. We're saved by faith in God's good work on the cross. But once we are saved, his second point is, Once you have this eternal life, you need to make every effort to grow in godliness. The ball is in your court. He's given you his spirit. He's given you his word. You can tap into his power, but you have to make every effort. Bend over backwards, as we said last time. So that was his second point. And he then gives us a measurement of that in verse 8. He says, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, literally, they'll keep you from being barren or fruitless. We have to be increasing, growing in these godly attributes. And so... Now, having established these two points, he's going to make a third point. And I'm calling this one the inducement. This is the the reason why we would want to do this. He says, therefore. And that's where our text starts this morning. Therefore. Because you have this mind-boggling eternal life. And you're to make every effort to grow in godliness. Therefore. Beginning in verse 10. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, that sounds a little strange to make your calling and election sure, doesn't it? It raises a lot of questions. In my mind, it probably does in yours too. Are we elect or are we not? How can something like election be unsure? Why is calling listed before election? Why why is all of this tied to our works? And on and on and on. Well, first, this is not talking about whether or not a person is saved. We need to understand that. This is being written to the church. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not being written to those people who go to church. It's being written to the church, those people who are part of the body of Christ. Anybody can go to church, but going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a donut shop makes you a cop, right? I, don't get me wrong again, I want unbelievers to go to church. I want them to hear the truth of God's love and his grace, and I want them to embrace that and then give their life to the Lord and grow in all of these things. 
But this is not being written to people who go to church. It's being written to those who are the church, who are believers. And, and I'm gonna, I found at least five reasons in this text, five evidences that this is written to believers. I need to go through them. Look first at verse one. The letter is addressed to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. The, the readers already have a precious saving faith. Then in verse five, he says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. They already have faith. Add to that goodness and these other attributes. And then verse nine, but if anyone does not have them, it doesn't say he's not saved. It says he is nearsighted and blind for he has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sin. It's speaking to those who've already been cleansed from their sin. They just might have forgotten this point. And then in verse 10, he refers to them as brothers. That's not like, hey, buddy, dude, friend. That's a very specific term that means one who is also a child of God, their heavenly father, a brother with Christ and fellow believers. So it's referring to brothers. And then my final point I saw was in verse 12. If we skip ahead, it says, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. Five different ways that he makes it abundantly clear. This is talking to believers. And why do I make such a big deal out of that? Because it colors how we read and understand, interpret this verse. It is not talking about whether or not you're saved. You need to do these things to be saved. That's not what it's saying at all. It says to make your calling and election sure. And, and you don't need to do this to demonstrate to God that you're saved. He knows who's saved and who's not. When it says to make your calling and election sure, what it means is to make it sure to you. Assurance is the word for sure. So that you have, you believers, have assurance of your salvation. That's the point. And so when we see spiritual growth in our lives, it makes us more and more and more sure of our salvation. Maybe starting out, I mean, we, we feel this incredible transformation when we give our life to the Lord and a weight lifted and we feel his forgiveness. But then as we go through life and we grow in godliness, we become more and more confident of our salvation. That's what this is talking about, assurance. Now, unbelievers can do a lot of good things. They really can. They have, scripture says, a form of godliness, but real spiritual growth can only come from, from sharing in the divine nature. It's a work that can only be done by the spirit. And so these are evidences of salvation and a saving faith. So when we see this, in, this fruit increasing in our lives, it, it gives us greater and greater assurance of our salvation. So this is not an evangelistic message. It's not that God can't reach out and save an unbeliever through this text, but that's not who this is being written to. This is being written to the church. Peter is stirring up those who become complacent or lazy in their faith. That's the point of this. He's trying to head that off. So, why does calling come before election? <laughs> well, that's a big topic, huh? Um, verses like this don't make sense, don't fit with some people's understanding of the word election. If one views election as God deciding beforehand who's going to be saved and who's not, to where some don't even have a shot at it because they've been elect not to be saved, well, then that doesn't fit here. In that, you should see election first and then calling. In fact, Romans 30, Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 30 says this. It says, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So you see this predestination and calling. But what people often overlook is what verse 29 of Romans chapter 8 says. It gives a, de a definition of predestination. It says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined 
to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the first fruits among many brothers. So the focus is not on who he predestined, but what he predestined. I like to word it this way. God determined before the foundation of the world that all who will believe will be conformed to the likeness of his son. He has determined that believers will grow ever increasingly to become more and more and more like Christ. That's why when you see this growth, it gives us encouragement and assurance of our salvation. Now again, don't misunderstand me. Is God sovereign? Yes, absolutely. Does he know beforehand who will be saved? He's omniscient. Yes, he knows that. Do you have to respond to his call, to the call of the gospel? Yes, you do. Now, I don't know if that helps or not, but I put it out there for you as you process through what can be a bit of a confusing verse. But this verse continues. It says, for if you do these things, you will never fall. What it doesn't say is you will never fall away because it's not talking about falling away from the faith. It's important that we realize that as well. It's not talking about losing your salvation. Once again, I'm behind on the slides. I need Deborah to give me that look. I know that look. Oh, I must be behind. So you will never fall. Some translations say never stumble. And again, it's not talking about falling away from the faith. I believe, and it's our position as a church, that once a person is saved, there is eternal security. The saying, once saved, always saved. But maybe you know some people who, it, it sure seems like, wow, they, in Awana, they, they, they profess faith and they're not walking with the Lord. There is no evidence, there is no fruit in their life. Well, I would put it this way, God knows the difference. And so, once saved in God's eyes, always saved. Because there is such a thing where it might look to men like a counterfeit kind of salvation. It might look to us like that person saved and we can't see their heart. We can't judge. But some might not actually be. But God knows. And in God's eyes, once saved, no one can snatch us out of his hand. Okay, so I do believe in the eternal security of believers. But So this is not talking about falling away or losing your salvation. So it's not saying you have to do all these things so that you won't lose your salvation. It's saying that you can fall, you can stumble in your faith, you can fall into sin, you can fall into despair and discouragement. A lot of those things, these, possessing these in increasing measure will keep us from falling in that way, from stumbling in our faith. That's what it's saying. So the first inducement or incentive is to make every effort to grow so that you will have assurance of your salvation. And then the second one is in verse 11. It says, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A rich welcome. Some translations call it an abundant welcome or an abundant entrance. Now, F.B. Meyer had an interesting comment on this, and, and he said this, that the idea of an abundant entrance was really a choral entrance. And he says it comes from, I saw the root word, corregeo, and, and he says the idea was a Roman conqueror coming into a city welcomed by singers and dancers, welcomed back into the city victoriously. It was a joyful choral entrance. And he says this is kind of the, what this is alluding to. And so we translated an abundant entrance or a rich entrance. Did you know that not everybody's entrance into the kingdom of heaven will be the same? Kind of shocking. You think, oh, I'm in heaven. But there's actually some differences. Let me read you a passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'll read verses 10 through 15. This is Paul writing. He says, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone 
also is building on it, but each one should be careful how he builds. That's a metaphor for how he lives his life and what he does with this, this salvation he has. He says, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, meaning the day of judgment, the day will, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each man's work. And he says, if, if what he builds survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, in other words, if it's just straw and stubble, it wasn't anything of any real significance that we built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and our saving faith. If it is burned up, he'll suffer loss himself. Oh, let me back up. If it, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. In other words, he gets in like by the skin of his teeth. Nothing he did. There's no reward in that. It's burned up. And so he enters heaven as one escaping through the flames. That's a little chilling, isn't it? One man comes in and receives his reward. And another gets in. He's still welcomed into heaven. But is one escaping through the flames. Do you remember the first American to go into space? Remember his name? Neurons firing, synaptic connections. Anybody remember his name? Alan Shepard. Good job. Alan Shepard was the first man in space. And after he, he flew on uh, the Mercury rocket that he named, the capsule was called Freedom 7. And after he returned, he received a hero's welcome. He was awarded the NASA Distinguished Service Medal by President John F. Kennedy. Shepard, he said, <laughs> he dropped the medal and, and very cleverly picked it up. And he said, Shepard, this is coming to you from the ground up. <laughs> and he hands him the medal. Very clever. It was a good save. And he received the ticker tape parade in D.C., New York, and Los Angeles. It was a true hero's welcome. Now, who remembers the second man in space? He was the first man to orbit the Earth. I think that was maybe the third guy in space. The second one, Virgil I. Gus Grissom. Remember Gus Grissom? Now, Gus Grissom flew aboard another Mercury capsule. He named it the Liberty Bell 7. And it was a very successful space flight. But after the splashdown, the hatch blew prematurely and the, and the capsule flooded with water and, and Gus got out, but the capsule sunk and he was filling up in his suit with water and they pulled him out of the water and there was a lot of speculation swirling that, oh, Gus screwed up. They, they like to say, screwed the pooch. <laughs> it was their saying back then. And so they plucked him out of the water. Guess what? He didn't get a medal ceremony at the White House. As best I could tell, there were no ticker tape parades. I mean, there was a band playing and they welcomed him back to earth, but he didn't receive this hero's welcome. It wasn't the same kind of, of, of reception. You could say he didn't receive a rich, abundant entrance. It wasn't a choral entrance, like with Alan Shepard. Now, now, more recent evidence shows that Grissom got a bad rap. <laughs> they think it was, they think they found evidence that it was a static electricity when the helicopter hooked onto the capsule and it fired the hatch. He said he didn't do it. But anyway, there was a big difference between the reception that Alan Shepard got and the reception that Gus Grissom got. You might remember the movie The Right Stuff and his wife. They really made a big deal of this. She's going, I, I want to meet Jackie. I want to go to the White House. Where are we? And all they got is a guy out there with the little trumpet. <laughs> and he's like, this is all we get. So this is, this is what I think of when it talks about 
a rich welcome or entering as one though through the flames. Just, just kind of getting in with all of what we did. What are some of the things that will burn up? Parts of our pursuits that were of no eternal value. Maybe part of our career. I mean, our career has a purpose in providing for our family and there's ministry opportunity and, and allows us to support the Lord's work and all of that. But there's a lot of things we pursue that are of no eternal value. Those are burned up. It's only the gold, the silver. Those are the things that endure the stone. And so how we build, what we do in this life, the kind of work we do as a believer matters and it affects our entrance into heaven. So we're to make every effort so that we possess these, qual these, these qualities in increasing measure so that you will also receive a rich welcome into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, run the race in such a way as to get the prize. Get the prize, the reward. So that's the inducement that we see here. If you make every effort to grow in godliness, you'll have assurance of your salvation in this life, and you'll have a rich welcome into the kingdom of God in the life to come, both present and future, eternal. That's the inducement. Now he moves on to the final point in this outline, the restatement. And beginning in verse 12, he says, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. Peter says outright, he says, I'm not telling you anything new. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. They already knew this. They knew it, and he's just repeating. Now, look, at, look down at verse 13. He says, you know, it, I'm going to repeat this, and it's good that I do again and again. Verse 13, he says, I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in this tent of the body. And I love that translation, refresh your memory or strengthen your memory. It literally means to stir it up, to arouse your memory, your thinking on this. And we could translate it today, I think it right to assist your synaptic plasticity, <laughs> okay? I think it right to fire those same neurons again and again so that this rises up to the forefront of your thinking and doesn't get flushed away with the other stuff your brain forgets so that you'll be equipped to make good, right decisions quickly. That's what he's saying here. You need to be thinking. I need to remind you of these things. Well, as a pastor, I, I struggle with this because I'm, for whatever reason, I'm reluctant to just say the same things over again. If I have to teach the same passage or teach on the same topic, I always feel like I have to come up with all new words, fresh new illustrations, and, and I'll look and I'll go, have, have I shared that story with them? 2013, yeah, but there's 16 people here who were there then, and they might remember it. I got to come up with a new one, you know? Well... I get great uh, comfort in this passage. Some things are worth repeating. We need to hear it again and again and again. I'll say it again. Some things are worth repeating because it reminds us, it refreshes our memory. It brings it up to the top, the forefront of our thinking. And so that's what Peter is saying here. And, and he's not the only one. The Apostle Paul said, it is no trouble for me to write to you the same things again and again, and it is a safeguard for you. That was Philippians 3.1. And he said, remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. I never stopped warning, 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 warning. He just kept bringing it up, bringing it up. Jude said, though you already know this, I want to remind you. So we need this repetition. So I should probably get over this idea that I just can't repeat something because it's, it's not biblical. <laughs> the biblical pattern is to repeat important truths. 
how many of y'all were here when Walt Barrett was here as our senior pastor, my predecessor? Yeah, a good number of you. He was here for nine years. What's one thing from his teaching that you remember? One phrase. God is still on the throne. Yeah, well, here's a picture of Walt and Jane from two weeks ago. Uh, they went to the Colts game together. This was the first time Jane has been out in public since the chemotherapy. And it was a really joyful occasion. He texted this to me. And Walt would say this again and again and again. God is still on the throne. It was like a mantra. It didn't matter what the circumstance. A memorial service. He'd remind us, God is still on the throne. I texted him about installing a new pastor. He said, God is still on the throne. A person, Jane, could have cancer. He said, God is still on the throne. I can't find my keys. God is still on the throne. He would say this again and again. And so we remember it. Amen. We need that repetition. Well, we need repetition, but it's not enough for you to just hear your pastor saying this. You need to be reading it for yourself again and again and again. That's why God captured it in his written word and preserved it for us. The, the new year's coming up. Start a read through the Bible plan in a year and go through it. You might go, oh, I read Leviticus like 12 times. Read it again and again and again. We need that. We need to refresh our memory of those truths. But we also have to be careful that we, we talked about this last week, that Familiarity breeds contempt. So we can look at this and lose our sense of wonder for just how awesome the truth of this word is. It can just be, I've been there, done that. And this is what drives some Christians to always be looking for the latest new thing. Get all the books, go visit new churches, follow all of the latest things, trends, whatever. They're looking for some new thing. But Peter says, I'm not telling you anything new. I'm telling you what you already know and you need to hear it again and again and again. See, we don't need a new revelation. We need a new reminder of the old revelation, of the old truth. That's what we need. So we have to be careful that we don't just, you know, roll our eyes and go, oh, here we go again. I've heard this passage taught before. Peter says, you need to hear it again. So, There's, um, Peter says he's going to keep on reminding us of these truths, even though we already know them, and he's going to continue doing it until as long as he lives in this tent of the body. That's interesting. In other words, he's going to keep doing this until he dies. Just a polite way of saying it. Until I die, I'm going to keep telling you this. There's, there's a number of places in the Bible where tent is used as a metaphor for our human body. And I think it's a, a suitable analogy because our earthly body is just a temporary dwelling. That's what tent means. Literally a tabernacle. The tabernacle in the desert was just a temporary dwelling for God until the temple was built. And then after that was destroyed, the temple you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you. He dwells amongst his people. So it's a, it's a temporary dwelling and it's breaking down. Tents wear out. <laughs> a tent is not an eternal thing. They're pretty flimsy. Um, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live on is, in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built with human hands. That's speaking of the glorified body that we will receive when Christ returns. Think about that. A tent versus an eternal dwelling in heaven. There's no comparison there at all. But yet we try to hold on to our tent. <laughs> I got to fix up my tent. I got to dye my tent. It's fading. I got to, you know, I got to, whatever. And it's good that we take care of our bodies. But we got to keep our eyes on what's to come. An eternal dwelling that is so much better. And so verse 14, he says, because I know that I will soon put it aside, his tent, uh, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. 
Again, it's just a nice way to say, I'm going to put it aside. I'm putting aside my tent. I'm going to kick the bucket. I'm going to die. He was one of the last living apostles. We don't know how God communicated to him that he would soon die, but we do know how God communicated to him how he would die. Let me read you in John 21. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. See, stretch out your hands, lead you where somebody, where you don't want to go. Somebody else dressing you. That's speaking of persecution and crucifixion. And history holds that Peter died of crucifixion. But tradition holds that he didn't count himself worthy to die in the same way as his Lord Jesus. So he was crucified upside down. So he knew he was going to die, and he even knew how he was going to die. And yet he continues making this point again and again until the very day that he dies. Why? Well, look at verse 15. And I will make every effort to see to it that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. I like his choice of words. I will make every effort. I love that because he said in verses five and six, you make every effort, make every effort, make every effort. And now he says, I'm going to make every effort too. What he's saying is, I will make every effort to see to it that you remember to make every effort to grow in godliness. Well, that's the last verse in our text, and I, I want to wrap it up. I want to apply some of the things that are in here, both in a spiritual and in a, in a practical way. In a, in a practical way, first of all, forgetfulness is a real thing. It, uh, it happens. Maybe it's by God's design. Maybe it's a product of the fall of man. Don't know, but either way, it's real. I, I would say to forget is human, but to not compensate for it is stupid. And so we know that we forget, we need to take certain measures so we don't forget important things. I have a checklist that I use in my airplane before I take off, before I land, for a missed approach, for all of those things. Why? Because I'm prone to getting busy and forgetting. I don't care how many times I've done it, I'm going to go through that checklist. We need to take measures to make sure we don't forget things that are important, like put the gear down <laughs> before you land. <laughs> Wouldn't be good to land gear up. So what can we do here? Well, I want to take a lesson quickly from the Old Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy, I focus here because I counted 16 times that God said, remember this, remember this, remember this. For instance, he said, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. Remember this and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. And then he said in chapter 8, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you to this day. So what did he tell him to do to keep from forgetting? How would he help him remember? He said in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he said, Talk about these things when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Well, as I read this, I see three things that line up exactly with what these neuroscientists are saying to do in order to remember for certain things. First of all, discussion. They said peer-to-peer -peer discussion is important to help you remember. What does he say? Talk about these things when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. This is a great activity for your drive home. Husband, wife, parents, children, talk about what you heard. Explain, ask questions, interact. It's a great activity for throughout the week, tonight at dinner. It's a great activity for our Bible studies. It's one of the reasons why we're, we're bringing back the Encore curriculum. Questions to help us dig in on a deeper study and make application of the text that is taught each week. That'll be coming back the first of the year. So 
discussing it, first of all. And then secondly, review. He says, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Put them where you see them all the time so you don't forget. Go back, revisit that information. We need to do that. See, we, have, we, we can hear a message from God's word and then we drive home and maybe in the afternoon we listen to some podcasts. There's some great teachers out there. We have access to the best teachers in the world so we listen to like six podcasts. Then we go to our Bible study on Monday or Wednesday and then we do it and we're just like skipping off the surface. You know, yeah, that's good truth, that's good truth. But we don't meditate on it long enough to get it soaking deep down in our soul and to get it into our practical behavior. So we have to revisit it. God says, take the important things and write them, like bind them. They, they took this literally and they put the little phylacteries, the boxes on their foreheads and on their wrists with verses in it. Whatever you need to do, put it on your refrigerator, put some points where you'll remember it. But this second thing, review, presupposes a third thing, writing. How are you going to do that if you don't take notes, if you don't write down what you're hearing, what you're learning? Now, now you can't write the whole thing out, but we should take what we hear and what we learn and we should pull out some relevant points. These are three or four things that I need to do in response to what I've heard in God's word. James says that don't just be hearers, be doers. If you just hear it and don't do anything with it, you deceive yourselves. It's foolish. So write down notes, pull out those things, revisit those notes. Go through them on your lunch hour this week. What do I need to do as a result of the truth of God's word? Because we need to remember these things. Those are some of the practical things that we can take from this. And then just on a spiritual level, specifically the three points that Peter makes in this first chapter. Believers have abundant and eternal life mind-blowing truth, the great and precious promises of God. Secondly, we need to make every effort to grow in godliness. We need to bend over backwards to do these things. And then thirdly, when we do, it'll bring us assurance of our salvation in this life and a rich welcome into the kingdom of God in the life to come. That's the message of chapter one, and it's worth repeating. Would you, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your word is truth and your word is life. We sing that, we say that over and over and it's true. It's truth and it's life. We need it. Just like the air we breathe, just like the food we eat, you talk about daily bread. God, we need to take in your word daily. Help us to, to hunger for it. Help us to feast on it to enjoy it. And then God, with what we read, help us to make every effort to grow in godliness. And when life gets hard, and it does, God, help us to remember the very great and precious promises that you have for us. Help us to live this life, to do the works that ensure that we will have a rich welcome into the kingdom of heaven. And so, God, we ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.